0: Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs, and I'm excited today to kick off a new series that we're doing in tandem with our sister church in Austin, Mosaic Church, a series called The Arrival. The Arrival. For a few weeks, we are going to God's Word to really press into the implications of Jesus, God, coming here. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's Word. Today we're in 1 John 1. If you have your Bibles and you're new to the whole Bible Christianity thing, just go to the back part of the Bible, go to Revelation, which is the last book, and then turn a few pages inward. 1 John is right in there. We're going to be 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning... To us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you, so that our joy may be complete. The Word of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond our familiarities. Some of us, this is the first Christmas we've experienced as Christians. Other of us, others of us were used to it. But I'm asking, Lord, that for all of us, you would help us to rest in the mystery of what we celebrate, the mystery of who you are, how you've always been, Jesus, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and how you came to us and you redeemed us when we rejected and rebelled against you, and that you want us to enter into and grow in. The life you've prepared for us." Lord, many of us see the needs for this, and we disconnect it from this church thing, this Bible thing, and I'm asking that you would not allow that, but that you would come and redeem. Amen. The title of this sermon is "Jesus: Our Life." Jesus: Our Life." Now, as I teach through these four verses of 1 John 1, first four verses, I have four important observations, and I'll just read them to you first. Number one, he, Jesus, was always there. Two, he arrived here. Three, we can enter into his life. And finally, our joy grows the more we share him. So let's start at the top. He was always there. Now I say there, meaning there in heaven with the Father, the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. And let's start right at the top of this letter. The very first words are, John says, that which was from the beginning. Jesus comes from the beginning, meaning eternity past. Trying to wrap your head around that is going to give you a headache. You will not get to the depths of what that means. Jesus has no beginning. He is God. He is perfect life. There was never a time where Jesus didn't exist, unlike the rest of us in this room. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons miss this detail and in so doing miss the entire Christian faith. If you ax the eternality of Christ, you ax the godness of Christ, and you thereby eliminate the power of His sacrifice to save. Let me just state the obvious. Without a Savior, we're not saved. We're we're dead in our sin and our transgression, and the worst of human sin and oppression is is just the tip of the iceberg of what hell really means. But he was there. In the beginning, he was always there. He is, was, and always will be God. And therefore, he is authorized to be an all-sufficient Savior amongst us. He was always there, this God-man, Jesus, this man we celebrate his coming, how he came and lived a perfect life, and, and, and therefore was able and qualified to die as sacrificial, perfect sacrifice of a death and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father who will come back in glory to judge the living and the dead. This Jesus, before any of that, was always there. He is God. Now verse 1 goes on. That which was from the beginning, then he talks about how these personally, they have personally borne witness to this eternal one, he says, that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. The word of life is such a loaded phrase. Word of life. First of all, this word word, the word for word that in English is translated word, is the Greek word logos. Logos. This is a very sacred word in Greek culture. To state this word, would have immediately drawn the the angst of your listeners. Kind of like if I started into politics right now, everyone would be like, I'm not going to, okay? (laughs) This word was loaded. Now to apply this word to a human person was unacceptable and warranted death. And John knew that. And nonetheless, he had a habit of calling Jesus Logos, the Word. You see, he kind of had already seen Jesus do the whole thing where he punked death. And he wasn't really, therefore, afraid being a follower of the person who uh, was dead and then very much undead. He wasn't very uh, nervous about facing death for calling Jesus who he is. He says that which was from the beginning, the word of life. Now he says he is not just the Logos, but the Logos of life, Zoe. Zoe is, again, our English language is not fitting for how loaded this term is. Zoe means the absolute fullness of life from God. It's creative life. It's multiplicative life. It is infinite life. Jesus is the Logos of Zoe. He is the perfect and ideal of Life from God. He says, this logos of Zoe, this life he reaffirms, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, this is another important point where if we can just learn to read slowly, we'll do ourselves better. This conjunction where he says, was with the Father and, I think this means this life was with the Father, and, and much later then, and was manifest to us. Jesus is not a part of the river of life, as it were. He's the wellspring. He was not created. He is creator. He was always there. He was always alive. He was always life itself, perfect and exhilarating perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That life always was. And then he graciously spilled into creation, creating with his words. John 1, and the same man who wrote this epistle also wrote a gospel account, And he starts off by calling Jesus again, the Logos. He says, in the beginning was the Logos, Jesus. And how he relates his pre-eternal state to how he chose to then, billions and billions of years later, uh, create us, he says this. He says, in him was life, and his life was the light of men. So another way of saying it is, the creator life was always there, but then creation lit up with his life because he said, let there be light. He was always there, and out of that came creation. If we slow down and understand the implications of this as it relates to how in our brief moment of breathing, And blood pumping in our life and our own anxieties, if we understand our life in context of that eternal life, we'll do better to rid ourselves of anxiety. My kids can better understand their place in our family, and really their place in the world, when they see that they're an object of a love and a desire that was there with me and my wife long before they even existed. They don't define themselves. They don't have to uh, come up with what kind of people they are in and of themselves. They do better to understand themselves when they understand themselves as temporary beings who are an object of something that came long before them. And in the same way, on a more infinite level, we can do better to understand our place in the universe. When we understand that first, before any of this, these worries that we faced, he was always there. I grieve so much for our generation. and I don't think the people and the young people especially that have these unfair burdens on them, the, the unfair burden to have to define for themselves everything that should already be settled, I don't think it's fair. In our effort, in our generation to try to liberate ourselves and say, you can be what you want to be, that's, that's good. But there's an also, there's also a, somewhat of an abusive element to that. When we put a burden on a younger generation in the name of liberation, of, you know, go be what you want to be, do what you want to do, define your purpose for yourself, well, that can be good. But when we put the full burden of defining things that are already meant to be defined, by us being made in God's image and we put ourselves out there and say you have to define all these things over again for yourself in your own image. We do harm. We've not seen the end of the dysphoria and anxiety that comes from young people that have to carry this burden. I have to define what my basic design and purpose and gender and, and calling and all these things that are supposed to be settled for me, and they are. And when we put the wrong kind of burden on young people, it does harm. But when we can, before we try to plan out our own life, can stop and rest and say, before any of these worries, any of these desires to define myself seem to be on my plate, he was always there. He was always there. And he decided at one point to create me. And I am a product of his creative power. Now, why do I get confused about that? And why is there war and rage against who he is? Well, we've fallen from him. We've, we were created in his image and it's not quite always so easy to understand that which really is pretty simple because our minds, our minds are deluded and depraved by confusion because we've all fallen from God. He was always there. He created us, and something went so wrong with sin. But number two, he arrived here, and this is the good news. He was always there, and we left him. After he created us, we we punked him. We spit in his face and rebelled against him. And yet, instead of casting us away forever, he chose to come into our mess. He arrived here. Long after creating us, he came to us. The creator entered creation. Like a master painter entering her own painting, he came to us. Now, John's gospel again opens with the eternality of Christ, saying, In the beginning was the word, which is echoed here in his epistle in our main text. That which was from the beginning, the word of life. Now, back to the gospel again, we've also covered how that, that power that was there in the beginning was creative in creating us. In him was life, in his life was the light of men. But check out how John in his gospel goes on to talk about how the creative power of Jesus watching us defile ourselves and and break ourselves chose to come into our brokenness and unbreak us. He says, the word, the logos, became flesh. That's where we get our English word incarnation, to put on flesh. The word became flesh. Flesh and dwelt among us, us sinful, dirty, rebellious people. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now again, this echoes the very first line of his epistle in our main text. He says here, we've seen his glory, but he goes on to say, we've seen, how? How? with our eyes. Thank you, John, for, for letting us know how, how you see. It's if, like if someone were to mock him and say, oh, really, you saw God. Oh, did you touch him too? Yeah, yeah, I touched him. How? With my hands. <laughs> now, I don't know that he's necessarily being sarcastic like that, but he sure is being extremely redundant. Twelve times, about a dozen times I can count in these four verses, there's first person plurals used. We saw, we looked upon, we touched, we testify. He wants to very clearly underline that they are very really eyewitnesses that are willing to testify to what they've seen and heard and touched because it's of uttermost importance. Verse 2, it goes on, We have seen it and testify and proclaim to you. Now this word testify is so important. In the King James it's we bear witness to. But the original Greek word that that John wrote down in in the middle of his persecution in this letter. He wrote down we martyreo. Instead of we testify it's the word martyreo. Which literally means where we get our English word, martyr. This word martyreo is also used when Jesus sends out the apostles in Acts chapter one. He says, you will be my witnesses in all the earth. You will be my martyrs in all the earth. That's what it means for him to say, look, we've seen this, and this is what we testify about. There are lots of things that I'm passionate about, preferences about, Uh, politics, or theology, or the sexual revolution, or my favorite sports teams, things that I feel strongly about, but that I would not be willing to die for. It'd be foolishness if I was willing to die for. They're just lesser opinions. But John is saying, this Jesus who we saw, who we touched, I'm willing to die any moment. In fact, they did try to kill him. They tried to, to boil him in oil, And it didn't work. So they tried to shut him up on an island by himself. And he kept writing. He says, I'm willing to testify. I'm not willing to testify about certain minor opinions I have. But the coming of the Christ into the world is worth thousands and millions of martyrs. That's how valuable it is. And John knew that. Most of the original eyewitnesses not only were willing to die, but they did die. And this is one of the most amazing things to ponder in all of history. Around 500 verifiable people claim to have seen the man who was verifiably dead. Even his enemies could attest to he was very much dead on the cross. No reasonable history tries to argue against this and 500 people said we saw him alive at least 3 days after this over a 40 day period he appeared to uh, 500 people that were able to say look you can you can come and find us you can have our email addresses come and talk to us we saw him alive They knew that this sort of claim, this sort of assertion, would upend religious order and social order and therefore cause them to be risking their lives. And many of them died for testifying martyrs to this claim. How do you explain this? There's a lot of evidence for the New Testament, for the claims that we hold dear about the incarnation and the coming of Jesus there's a lot of evidence for it. You can, you can point to archaeological evidence that has, has come about that has underlined the assertions that we make, that, okay, this claim is true. Uh, there's some textual evidence. For instance, the, the gospel account of Luke, he made a lot of uh, medical claims and used a lot of biological words that it wasn't until the last few centuries that we could verify, oh man, he legitimately knew what he was talking about. But of all the evidence we can find, nothing is like eyewitness testimony that we see from these people who saw and touched and looked upon the Christ. 500 people were willing to testify to this at the point of death. None of them recanted in a city that it would have been most desirous by Jesus' enemies to disprove and easiest to disprove in the days after He resurrected. It was not disproved. And it's because there were so many eyewitnesses. The best reasonable explanation for why people claim to have seen Christ and were willing to die for it and didn't change their story is because it actually happened. Jesus came, the eternal one who was always there, came here, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose again from the dead, and provided adequate testimony about this. Now, let's talk about epistemology for a second. Everyone loves epistemology. Epistemology is, it's how we know what we know. Everyone has a grid by which we we judge what we know and what we don't know or what we claim to know. Now, let me just say, These things are not true just because the Bible says so. Track with me. The Bible is true, but not just because it says so. We we have something that God has given us in his inspired word that's better than that. It's true because it happened. And the historical evidence for these claims actually happening further underlined to show the reliability that the Bible is true. So the Bible is true, but not just because it says it's true alone. That's circular reasoning. That's the epistemology of other major religions in the world. But the life and work of Jesus declares the Bible is true. It's not just that the Bible declares that Jesus is true. Jesus is, is greater than all, and he gives us good gifts like the Bible, which is greater than us. And we know this because Jesus has not only done these things, but he's provided adequate witness through eyewitnesses of his life that he came. He, he who was there really came here. And if we ask why he came here, and we ask him and his word why he came here, we can understand why people might have a, a problem with how he came. Because if you ask people on the street and if you ask 10 people, maybe even in here, why did Jesus come to the earth? We might get 10 different answers. Oh, to show us his love. And all oh, that's true. But he came to deal with sin. In fact, that would un- if we understand that, Gabriel told Joseph in Matthew, Your wife will give birth to a son. She will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. There's a lot of enemies you have in your life, but you are your greatest enemy, and your sin is your greatest enemy, and my sin is my greatest enemy, and Jesus came to deal with my sin, and this provides a little bit of evidence for why people would seek to disprove the Bible, why there's a passionate inclination to lift Christ up, and there's a passionate inclination to put this all aside, because if I'm saved from my sin, I need to specifically admit my very ugly sinfulness. John Piper is a pastor in Minnesota, and he gives some commentary on 1 John chapter 1. And it's a long quote, so y'all can track with me, right? Still here? He says, Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it's so much the mystery of a divine human nature and and a human nature and a divine nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect, and the particularity of his work and word flow into history in the form of a particular inspired book written, by the way, in Greek and Hebrew, that claims a universal authority over every book ever written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We're not God. He is. We can only be at peace in our bodies, our souls and spirits, when we're under submission to the greater life who was always there and created us and has the right to define us and arrives into our messy place to redeem us that's what gets us to number th- number 3 we can enter into his life so just to review god is eternally glorious he was always there and he came here in a particular moment by which since the last few millennia billions of people has have measured time since this moment he arrived and number 3 consider what he did between arriving here and ascending into heaven in 33 short years because of his sinless life this this man who who would hold little children in his arms and rebuke lofty religious oppressors, and healed the sick. He lived a perfect life, and because of his sacrificial death on a Roman cross, and because of his verifiable resurrection, because of his ascension into heaven, and sending the third person of, the, of the, the Trinity to us, the Holy Spirit to us, because of this, we, every human being, can enter into the eternal life that was there in the beginning and will always be here. And the life we enter into isn't, isn't in isolation. It's not like planting a seed in a pot. It's more like what Paul says. He says the, the wild olive shoot has been grafted into the greater tree. Like the very tree of life that was there in Eden in the garden, Jesus comes and redeems us and grafts us into a life that preexisted us. Or Back to our text, verse 1. The word of life, the life, down to verse 3, we proclaim this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is, is with the Father and His Son. He's alluding to, look, this was a riveting relationship from eternity's past. It's not just fellowship as we might define it, but we're entering into His life. We're being baptized into this greater thing than us through the gospel. It's like when I married into my wife's family. Yes, we started a new family. There's that. But also in another sense, she married into the, the beautiful elements of my family and got that inheritance. And I married into the beautiful elements of her family. So I get to experience the beauty of things that Ellen and Glenn sowed into the family that I experienced before I married into it, before I was even born. That's so much like the gospel we enter into, the life that Jesus brings us into. He brings us into something that's already great through adoption. I remember what it felt like before I knew the Lord. I was a religious hypocrite, manipulating people to get what I wanted, defining my life the best I could. My life was all about my goals. My life was defined about if I got hits or through strikes or not. All about if I could get people to like me. It was an empty venture, to say the least. And then I was brought into a new family, into a new life. But it didn't stop there. Stay with me. Number four, our joy grows the more we share Him. Now, stay with me because if you stop at point three and you don't capture the growth that we see in point four, in verse four, you'll be like the one who entered into life but stopped there. You'll be like a spiritual toddler running around crying about bumping your elbow and always needing people to change your pants, which, by the, by the way, is gross, especially if you're not a toddler. Okay, So stick with me. Verse four. We are writing these things to you that our joy and your joy may be complete. Now, I say that our joy grows because we need it to, and that's okay. The reason that Paul says that our joy may be complete is because it implies that it's not yet complete. We're a work in progress. We're not yet perfect, and that's okay. We need to grow. Turn to your neighbor and say, you really need to grow up. Some of y'all have been waiting to say that. Oh, thank God I get to say it. Really? Y'all, I've been a Christian for over 21 years. Almost 13 of them have been married. I feel like as the years go, go on, I learn more about how I need to grow than I actually feel like I actually grow. I also learned that God's okay with that. And I should be too. Please look at me. I just want to warn you and affirm that many of you, this is not going to seem like good news, but I'm getting to the good news. Many of you are going to have a really difficult few weeks the next few weeks. You're going to be with family, which is going to be good. No, 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 no. You're feeling the pain. You're going to be the family. Oh, Lord. Some of it 's good and some of it 's just some of it 's difficult family members, and some of those folks feel the same way about you. They need to grow, and so do you. And so maybe the, the regular routines of the year allow you to avoid certain issues that will be exposed in the next few weeks. And what I am pleading with you is do not add disillusionment and guilt and condemnation to the pain that you're already going to experience. Because in the middle of your pain, if you can wait on the Lord, He's promised They who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up like, on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And if you wait on the Lord in the midst of this coming pain, with your difficult parents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, some of y'all it's the guilt of your own sin when left to yourself and your own habits. You grieve and you, you're so ashamed of yourselves. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus who saw you and saw these things, the moment he joyfully went to the cross, he's not ashamed to you of you. He endured the cross despising its shame. So don't add guilt and the weight of other things To the difficulty that Jesus can help you to battle, but battle victoriously. Wait on Him. It wasn't just the first century Christians that had to wait on the Lord, but we continue to wait for the Messiah's dominion in our lives and say, Oh, His kingdom has come, but it's an already not yet reality. That his kingdom is still coming in me. It's still coming to to clamp down on my habits and my thoughts and my opinions and my unforgiveness. And I'm saying, be open, be willing, be okay with having to grow. And I say we grow the more we share him. Verse 3, that which we've seen, we heard, and we proclaim also to you that you too might have fellowship with us. Notice the proclaiming comes before the fellowshipping. Fellowship and community and love and the joy we experience in family as it's supposed to be is a fruit of the gospel. We don't just do fellowship for fellowship's sake. Just like we don't, no one can do goodness for goodness sake. I'm sorry if that's your favorite silly Santa Claus song. But we can't do it only in proclaiming Christ and lifting him up. Can I love you the way I'm supposed to love you? I can only be a good friend to you if I love Jesus in you more than I love you. And so that's how we grow. We grow speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4 says, we grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. Jesus is the one who binds us together in difficult times and in good times. Like baking without a binding agent like eggs. We're just a big, mushy mess, unless we're bound together by Jesus. Now, when we're bound together by Jesus, track with me here. I'm almost done. When we're bound together by Jesus, we're still a mess, but we're his mess. And we, the more that we're okay with that, the more we can grow in proclaiming him. And the more we realize that you're not quite the protagonist of your own life, he is, the more you'll grow in that, and you'll be strong in your weakness, We're a mess. We're not fit for relationship with each other without him because we need to be cleansed over and over. That's why I'm going to read the next few verses that come after verse 4 to give context. This is the message we've heard from the beginning and proclaim to you that God is light. You're not. We're darkness. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Some of you might have just found out that you're lying. And today, as we get ready to go to the table, you need to bring your lies and your practicing of darkness to the table and find light through faith in Christ. And you need to lay down lies through faith. And it goes on, verse 7, But if we walk in the light, we're drawn to it, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why is that? Because when we have fellowship killing sin, we can't fix it. We need him to cleanse us first. And then we can do relationship with each other. Verse 8 if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How unrighteous are you? Less than all. His blood is greater than our sin. Would you stand with me?